is indeed a pointed parable. It's actually a wake-up call. You can think of examples, I'm sure you've had some in your own experience. I think of uh, one of my colleagues in Evangelical Alliance on a London station platform, suddenly seized with chest pains and by pure chance another colleague happened to be at the other end of the same platform. Or last week, uh, Bill Clinton whisked into hospital for urgent surgery if he was not to lose his life. Some of you have arrived this week as students, perhaps, uh, and that may be an exciting, joyful experience. It's also a bit of a wake-up call as someone switched on autumn, just like that, and uh, Edinburgh cools down to welcome you. Uh, All the excitements and all the challenges of living in this place and starting your new life here. You may have had your own version of a wake-up call, even this week, that phone call that came. Some unexpected visitor, an email perhaps, or a letter. Most sombre, of course, this weekend is the memory, as we've already touched on, as we've prayed, of what happened just three years ago in New York. It was a wake-up call. It awoke us to the fact that in the contemporary world we are all connected. Everyone is involved. Everyone's actions have impacts on others. It was a wake-up call for our friends in America, some of whom had not understood the depth of feeling about what was going on in the world. It was a great shock. And we've seen others and heard of others and prayed for them quite rightly today. Perhaps on a slightly more humorous side, uh, you may have had the chance to see Super Size Me, which was another kind of wake-up call. Here's a man who decided that for one month he would eat only McDonald's, uh, breakfast, lunch and dinner. And uh, he would never resist when someone cheerfully and cheerfully said, Super Size? Oh, yes, please. Halfway through, his colleagues were terrified for him as he ballooned in weight. Uh, as his uh, desires plummeted and as he struggled with the consequences. It was a wake-up call to him, such a wake-up call indeed. Here is Jesus at Jerusalem at last. He's coming into the final phase of his ministry. He's coming to the very heart of what he has come to this earth to do. And the heart of the issue is this, that God's people are not what they should be. And their leaders, particularly, have failed to lead them. The heart is that the ultimate confrontation is looming in front of Jesus now. These next few days will take him to the cross, the focus of his ministry. It's interesting in the beginning of chapter 12 that as that pressure builds, Jesus takes a slightly less direct approach for a little while longer. If you like, he steps back from the impending confrontation. And he goes back again to telling this parable, a story that means something to those who will hear and means nothing to those who stop their ears. But of course, it's, it's not a very difficult parable. Even now, 2,000 years later, we understand it pretty clearly. It's not one that needs a lot of explaining. He's a man who sets up a business. It's a really good going business. 
it's quickly established. It's firmly founded. It flourishes very soon. Verse 1 has a sense of uh, the planting the vineyard, the carefully putting a wall around it, the digging for the winepress, the building of the watchtower. Every dimension is covered and you get the feeling of a job done really well. This is good business. This is a model business. And here's a man who doesn't do it for himself. He does it for others. He entrusts it to the tenants. So please come, uh, help me run my business. Share what I've done. Enjoy the fruits of it. Of course he expects a good return from his investment, but he's not expecting everything back. It's the story of what happens when that owner of that good business, that shared business, comes to look for the return. There are two striking things to learn as we think of this wake-up call to lead us. The first is this, that you may be sure there is accountability where God is concerned. You may be absolutely sure that there is accountability where God is concerned. The parable is transparent, perhaps even as I read it, you could see who represents who and how it works. Clearly the owner is God himself. The vineyard, if you know your Old Testament at all well, is a well-known image throughout the old part of the Bible. It's a well-known image to Jesus' own people. It's a particularly well-known image to those who lead the religious community. But Jesus makes a subtle change from the image that they'd grown up with. If you have time later, you might like to read of it in Isaiah chapter 5, the first seven verses, where God speaks through his prophet Isaiah a poem, actually. It's God's love song. But it's one of those love songs, like the one I heard on the radio this morning, uh, that was saying, oh, I wish I could go back to how things used to be. You know, the game's changed and that that first love seems to have flown away. Life's got too busy, it's all too complicated. Can I recapture that first love, what I really intended here? And that's what you get in Isaiah 5. The sadness of setting everything up beautifully, of enjoying a really good relationship. But then one way and another it just doesn't seem to work any longer. And God comes to the vineyard and the grapes have gone off and they're spoiled and and he doesn't quite know what to do with it. That's the feeling of the the poem. It's an extraordinary love song. In Isaiah, the vineyard represents God's special people who were called to be his people and therefore called to declare his praises throughout the known world. That's the purpose. That's how God works. That's the pattern. But here, when Jesus takes it, he makes a subtle shift. He puts the tenants in the vineyard. They're the ones who are the target. These are the ones who have been given responsibility for continuing this good business. If you have a business and you've built it up the long, slow, hard way, whether you own it or whether somebody else does, you'll know. You'll know how hard it is to do that. You know how you feel responsible for it. You know how hard it is to keep a good business a good business. As soon as you fall asleep, of course, everything changes around you and you struggle to keep up. That's been going on all the time. And those who were expected to be responsible were expected to bring a return. And Jesus tells his parable. And we discover that they want to keep it all 
to themselves instead. Oh, they recognise themselves in this parable, of course, and the reactions vary as Jesus tells the parable. There's a whole crowd of people listening in, and they like the story. Oh, yeah, actually, they can see what Jesus is talking about. They know that the people who run the religious business in their world, in their time, do it largely for their own status. The focus is on them. They want that status. They want to be in charge. But the leaders, when they hear this story, they hate it. Reminds me of something that Billy Graham once spoke about in some of his big meetings when he talked about the challenge of suffering, those kinds of wake-up calls that come to us. And he says those things can produce two reactions. They can either make you bitter or they can make you better. You seek God in the midst of them. Seek his purpose, seek his strength, seek his wisdom. Look to him as we were again, again praying for those families and those individuals in that moment of silence this morning. Clearly the crowd want more and they're warming, but clearly the leaders are bitter. They're both bitter in the story and they're bitter in real life. There is no happy end to this one. The lines are now clearly drawn as Jesus heads in further into Jerusalem. crowd are sympathetic, so much so that the leaders now feel completely boxed in. And again, if you have time to read back in Mark's Gospel into the chapter before, chapter 11, you'll see how those clouds have been gathering. Jesus entered Jerusalem to a warm, popular welcome, like there'll be crowds on Princess Street clapping the runners home just now, and rightly so, rewarding them for all they've done, like we saw in the Olympics a while ago. A terrific response to race after race and event after event. Maybe even some of you are privileged to be there for some of the time. Many of us were able to watch it. That kind of warm welcome was there and extended to Jesus. But then he's straight into the temple, the heart of where worship of God is meant to be, the heart of where the story about God is meant to be told. And he has to clear that temple because there's so much there that's getting in the way of the truth. So much there. This house, says Jesus, is meant to be a house of prayer and prayer for all the nations. But you have made it prayer for yourself and you've tacked on a whole industry of religion that has taken people away from the heart of God's message and God's purpose and therefore I'm clearing it out of the way. See how strong this is and see how powerful this is. You've kept this to yourself and it was meant for the whole world. And the strange incident at the end of chapter 11 uh, about walking around with his disciples and they come across a fig tree and it looks really good. It's got lovely luscious leaves on it. It looks as if if you just rummaged around you could find real fruit there, real food, real juicy stuff. And when they look, there's nothing there. And Jesus declares that to be a picture of how things are with those who are responsible for God's vineyard. They look good, but actually inside. They're rotten. They're keeping it to themselves. They're not what they intended to be. And then finally in chapter 11 comes the argument. You can understand why. Whose authority, Jesus, have you got to behave like this? Where do you get this from? How does it work? And by the end in verse 33, there's a kind of standoff. They answered Jesus, we don't know where 
John gets his baptism from. And we're not going to answer your question. Well, Jesus says, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. And the lines are drawn. And he steps back and he tells this parable because he knows he's going in to the last things. These leaders reject John the Baptist who was meant to prepare the way for Jesus and they've been opposing Jesus. And then comes this transparent parable. Tom Wright, the Bishop of Durham, puts it like this. It's a picture of God waiting at a distance, addressing his people through the prophets, longing for the time when they would at last obey his call to be the people he wanted them to be. So he keeps sending his servants and they keep getting rejected and the story gets more and more violent. It's a distasteful story. But we know it in our world, don't we? Eventually, he sends the Son who he loves, verse 6. And you're meant to notice the status there. Again, if you know the Gospels well, you'll remember when Jesus was baptized, the voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. It's the same phrase. And when Jesus goes with his two friends to the mountain and is transfigured and they're just overwhelmed by an experience of seeing him in his proper place, it's exactly the same word that comes. This is my son, the one I love. Listen to him. And here it is again. Here's my beloved son. They will surely listen to him. Jesus, of course, is referring to himself. It's another reason to tell a parable because it's not quite the right moment yet to go to the final showdown. It's a slightly less direct approach. It sorts out those who will listen and those who will reject. We'll see in a minute how these tenants don't reckon with what the owner will do. But first and foremost, I want you to notice that there is an accountability here. I want you to notice how vital a theme that is for how we respond as Christians in the complexities of this world in which we live just now. It's a major gospel theme, I think, for us. I was listening to uh, another leading Baptist person, John Drain, uh, based in Aberdeen, who was speaking at a, uh, an exhibition up in, in Varuri. It was a unique experience for both of us. I was doing a seminar and because uh, it was in the um, marketplace where they sell cattle and animals, uh, we were both speaking in bull rings, which was um, a first for both of us, I think. His at least had a platform. I had to decide whether to go in the cage or outside the cage and I couldn't know until I knew who was coming. So I decided to go outside the cage and we just about got away with it. It was quite a challenge to do visual stuff in the bull ring and the clegs were were out in force, I might add, uh, nipping away at you. And the smell I can still smell uh, to this day. But John was uh, surveying the history of the church involved with the world. We'll think again about this tonight, perhaps. But he surveys the history of Christian engagement. And he identifies pictures in Scripture that came to life because of particular times in history. So in the early church when there was direct persecution and real misunderstanding as many of our brothers and sisters experienced across the world as we were praying for them earlier on, we were thinking of them. And the picture that the early church held on to was of Jesus as the good shepherd caring for his people when they're up against it, protecting them against military might 
and the, the power of misunderstanding around them. They used to think that uh, when they had bread and wine, because the wine was red, they used to misunderstand what they were doing in communion. They used to say that they were sacrificing children. How bad a misunderstanding was that? So they looked to the Good Shepherd. You come along to the Middle Ages, where so many people suffered so long, and it seemed so pointlessly, and therefore you focused on the image of the crucified Christ on the cross, for he knows what you suffer. That was ringing loud and clear in the Middle Ages. Come to the Reformation, the 17th and 16th and 17th century, and the focus of attention was how to get right with God. Is the church telling us the truth about how to get right with God? Actually, no, we need to change it. There needs to be a Reformation. The Victorians, some of whom's uh, hymns and songs we still sing, they were particularly preoccupied with death. So John Drain says. And as you look back through the 20th century, increasingly there was that great search for meaning. And each generation you see something different going on and Jesus providing an answer at a different level. John Drain's view is that the 21st century now, people are basically terrified, fearful. And that's the predominant emotion that we see and we deal with. The kind of running away from it is the engine for so much of our entertainment industries and so much of what goes on around us. But he thinks that's where it'll be in these next years. And therefore the notion that there is accountability and that God will deal with things and that he will deal with them justly. He does know the whole story. He does know the real reasons why. And you may be sure and you may trust him to sort things out eventually. That's a powerful gospel message. There is accountability. And the focus of that accountability is the Son, who is Jesus. You may be sure of this accountability. And secondly, you may be sure that there is a final word. That's where it takes you as the focus shifts to the Son, who is Jesus. Verse 7, when... The owner sends the son and the tenants decide because of the way the inheritance rules worked that if the servants have all gone and the son comes and we get rid of all of them and then we get rid of him then it falls to us. That's how it used to work. In our day we, uh, it falls to the state and uh, we, we kind of lose it all unless you've made preparations for that. But it worked a bit different from us here. It looks like the end of the story. A single, ghastly, brilliant strike, actually, against authority and ownership. Do this, they say, and it'll all be ours. And we can keep it to ourselves. We've had our share of political systems like that. What's yours is mine. And I can keep it. If we just get these servants and this son out of the picture, we can get on with running our world in our way. Remember, it's the leaders who are in focus here. And the religious leaders, particularly, they want to be in charge, these people. They want to own the church. They want to be the focus of attention. They want to shape the things of God so that you don't know them unless you go through them. It's a peculiar temptation for some of us even now. It's a particular word for those of us 
who takes leadership in the church's life. Uh, and you know me, if you know me from the past, I'm an Episcopalian by background. I'm not just talking about bishops, though I am sometimes. I'm talking about independent churches too, where these kinds of patterns can take place. Of course, they make a false step, don't they? They think that once they deal with the son, that's the end of the story, as if the owner just quietly shuffles off and, and keeps out of the way and, and never reappears. But if the parable comes back, there will be a reckoning. They've reckoned without the owner, and the owner will deal with this, and he will not put up with it. That's the accountability. That's the reckoning and the promise. And he will do so because in his son, he sent a final word. His final word. This is the full story. This is everything you will need to know. That's the thing that you're meant to notice as you meditate on this passage. This son, this Jesus, is God's final word. And he is the basis of the accountability that will come. Again, how many bells does this ring in our contemporary world? I'm particularly involved personally with conversations between Christians and Muslims. And it seems to me that these are absolutely vital conversations for us to be having, particularly at such a time as this. And there are many occasions when we're speaking about what's going on in our society that we end up saying very similar things. Christians, Muslims wanting our society to be better, anxious about education, worried about sexual health, concerned about God's place in the world and the honouring of God's standards. And we walk along the similar road for quite some time together. They, as we, are concerned about the character of our society, the place of God in public life. In my experience, Muslims want their Christian friends to be clearly Christian. They don't want us to give up what we believe unless we should upset them or offend them. But as the conversation goes on, of course, and as you go down the road, in the end, especially when you start to speak about the person of Jesus, you realise that we're saying completely different things. They've said uh, from the start that uh, with Moses and Abraham and uh, David, these are all great prophets sent from God, but one way or another, God's people mucked it up. So God had to send another. And the same thing, they say, happened with Jesus. That Jesus was sent from God and one way and another his followers mucked it up. So Muhammad had to come and that's the final word. That's the final version of what God wants. And you can see, of course, immediately how we have to debate that. How we don't agree with that. And how we must depart from that. This Jesus is God's final word. This is my son. They will listen to him. They don't, and yet the reckoning is on the basis of what has happened to him. He is the full story. He is the final word. He's all you need to know if you want to know what God is like. The words that Jesus used to finish here in verse 10 comes from one of the Psalms, Psalm 118. The stone that has been rejected suddenly becomes the chief stone, the cornerstone or the capstone, it could go either way. This owner will reckon. He will sort things out. He will put things back 
where they should be. He will complete the building to change the picture from the vineyard. Jesus kind of uses both pictures at once. The building stone that wouldn't fit anywhere else has a special purpose to be at the heart, to be at the centre, to be the focus of the building, to be the finishing touch to the picture. That central figure of Christ, that vital work that only he can do on the cross. And that's where the parable ends. And you can almost hear the silence after Jesus has made that declaration. And then you see the final response to God's final word from these leaders in verse 12 is to want to get rid of him. You may be sure that there's an accountability. You may be sure that there is a final word and that that final word is Jesus Christ. What word is that to us today? This is a a hard parable. This is indeed a wake-up call to us. It is a call, I think, to the churches, to you in particular as a church, and particularly within a church like this, if your responsibility is in any sense to lead. You have responsibility. You are like a tenant in the vineyard. It's not your vineyard. You have an accountability to give. There is a final word and you must respond to that. Will you keep central things central? That's the question. As you go into this new year, this is the time of things beginning again. It's a new season. We're all getting back into gear again. New things are starting. Old groups are getting back together again. But here's the question. Will you keep central things central? Will you resist the temptation? As as I was reminding the people who who brought the doulos in earlier this summer, the OM people, uh, there were folks on the leadership team, the line-up team from Brazil and Austria and Germany, and I was enjoying telling them of some of our phrases and I kept telling them, don't let the tail wag the dog. They enjoyed that, the Germans. They hadn't heard that one before. Will you keep central things central and not let the things around determine what happens? Will that be the way that you lead? Will you resist the temptation to do things your way? Or even, dare I say it, the way we've always done it? Keep the focus Keep the spotlight on this Jesus who is the new creator that we were thinking of earlier on. Will you keep these final things final in your thinking, in your decision making, in what you do and what you don't do and how you decide from one to the other? It's a word to churches and to us who lead in particular. Oh yes, it's a word also secondly to me as I now work with an alliance of churches like yours across the country. It's a particular word as we want to have this prophetic voice in society. Again, we want to have a provocative voice to the churches too and that's not an easy job to do. One of the uh, scary things about this new job, I was a local church minister for many years in the west side of Edinburgh, is you never quite know whether you've been alright until you get an invitation back again. So, uh, you know, kind of only as good as your last sermon, you know. Uh, But it's very interesting to live like that, to see if you're on the right lines and some folks may not receive what you have to say. The guest speaker has a great privilege but also a great responsibility. Tom Wright again puts it like this. 
those who follow Jesus often have to speak and often have to act in ways that the surrounding culture won't understand and won't like. The church has a prophetic mission to the wider world because the God who planted Israel as a vineyard is the creator God by whom in fact the whole world was designed as a fruitful garden. God's promise remains. When builders reject a stone, sometimes that's because it's designed to be the capstone. It's Jesus, the focus and the heart of it. Yes, there's a word to me and I take this personally too as we seek to build an alliance of churches of all shapes and sizes, of all patterns and backgrounds, but sharing common concerns and keeping these things central together. And yes, it is a word for each and every one of us together this morning. God still intends his people to be the vineyard, if you like, to be the model community of all ages and stages, backgrounds and experiences, new Christians and those who are senior in the faith, to be together, to model how he wants things to be, how he wants life to be lived. My question is very simple, but very deep. Will you let him model that here amongst you, together? I wonder if this stern parable has been a wake-up call to you today. My colleague's health scare led to action. Bill Clinton had his bypass. He joked with George Bush that without it he would have had no more chance of another five years. Everything has changed after 9-11. It was a wake-up call on a massive scale. And even supersize me, it was such a powerful film that McDonald's removed their supersize option altogether. And you may now buy salads and healthy things at McDonald's. Let's pray together.